the Lord for that. They're asking, Lori specifically asked for another CT scan that will be done tomorrow. And so would you pray for that? Pray for good results. The Lord would work in that. Through that, maybe show some good progress being made that maybe can't be seen from the outside, but that's happening in the brain and other places. So just pray for Brother Dave there. She also sends a note how grateful and humbled they are by all the prayers on Dave's behalf and the family there. So thank you for praying for Brother Dave. Would you continue to do so? I know there's also been some talk that he'll be moved into some more long-term care come the end of the week. So we just pray for wisdom for that, and uh, again, that the Lord would intervene on his behalf and try to keep you as updated as we can. There are some things that pretty much stay the same, some things that maybe change daily and so forth, but we'll try to every service keep you updated, things that we know, but be much in prayer specifically for tomorrow for that uh, CT scan, if you will. Hebrews chapter 7, if you need an outline, um, Brother Doug's going to come down the middle aisle here, and so we'd love for you to follow along. We're picking up where we left off last week as we delved into chapter number 7 here. And uh, as we were, again, if you need an outline, get Brother Doug's attention as he makes his way down the middle aisle. Um, last week we were in, reintroduced to Melchizedek, mentioned in chapter 5 previously. And uh, he reintroduces him to him really at the end of chapter 6. We, we just hit on him right there in the last verse, verse number 20. And as he does so, he's about to embark upon rather lengthy and in-depth consideration of the uh, priesthood of Melchizedek, this Old Testament character. Uh, verse 1, he mentions it, you see there, for this Melchizedek, all right? So who in the world was he? We looked at this last week, and uh, it's a fun study in many different ways, even archaeologically speaking. It's, I was looking even this week, and uh, some of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found had made mention of uh, Melchizedek and some of their favorites. So it's just kind of interesting uh, to see and read some of those things and such. Well, we talked about some options that are out there. And the first one was that uh, he was a, uh, some have postulated that he was an angel. And uh, I believe that's unlikely. I believe there's no scriptures that really point to that reality, though there are some. Uh, I was reading something this week that somebody thought that he was Shem. And uh, it's kind of interesting. But anyway, and so the, uh, these are probably the more three popular. That one, secondly, that is, uh, others believe and uh, that it is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ there in the Old Testament. Uh, and yet others believe, and the one that I would certainly lean to is that uh, he was a historical human being, though we might not know much about him as we talked about, but yet his priestly ministry typifies that of Christ. And, And by design, God had Melchizedek in that time period, that age of history, by which he could be that picture of Jesus Christ, his priestly ministry, and, and also the reality of his kingship, all kind of wrapped into one, okay? We, we saw how that would certainly be in keeping with several types that we found in the Old Testament. We, we kind of took a little rabbit trail. We talked about what a type is, that a, a person, a practice, a ceremony of the Old Testament that has its counterpart in the New Testament, and that type pictures or prefigures what is to come in the New Testament. The type is historical, it is real, and it is of God, but it is imperfect. It is temporal. It is not what the real thing is, right? And we talked about the thing that it is a type of. It's called an anti-type, right? It's called the anti-type. And in the realm of typology, it is eternal. It is perfect. It is the substance of the complete thing. And so we noted, though, though we might not know for sure who Melchizedek was, it doesn't lessen the teaching point. Here's why we see him repeated chapter 5, the end of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7 now for a couple chapters. Why is it such a big deal? Well, here's the important note behind it. The Jews held dear within Judaism more than anything else the priesthood. 
and everything that went with it, the sacrifices and, and such. And so that was crucial to them. It was central to their faith because without sacrifices, uh, you could not have forgiveness of sin. And without the priest, you could not have sacrifices. So it was a legitimate thought, and uh, Paul had to address, the author of Hebrews had to address here, okay? They certainly understood, or in their minds, obviously, based upon the Levitical priesthood, the Old Testament, uh, the only way that they could uh, have the restoration of their fellowship with God that was broken by sin was through the removing of sin by obtaining the forgiveness of God by his designated means and order of the priesthood. Okay, that's why we have such a fixation here, a focus on Melchizedek, his background, who he is. Uh, just a few little tidbits of information were given about him. That's why it's so crucial and important for the Jew that is reading this letter and considering Christ being the Messiah and the Savior and the ultimate high priest, as Paul presents here. Okay, verse one spoke of Melchizedek and specifically related to the first instance that we find of him. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, as he comes out to meet Abraham as described in verse number one. Later on, we saw how David mentions him in a single verse. It's a prophetical passage speaking of the coming Messiah. And that is Psalm 110, verse four. We looked at that last week. And it is the first time, crucial to remember, it's the first time the connection was made between the Messiah and Melchizedek. And then by typology, it is a connection between the Messiah and Jesus Christ. And so it's the, present, uh, the presentation of this connection, the fulfillment of Christ being the Messiah. And again, Psalm 110 was a passage that the Jews held to. And uh, they saw it as a prophetical passage for the, uh, for the Messiah. And so to equate that, speaking of uh, Jesus Christ, and connect that to the Melchizedek priesthood was huge. It was a big uh, point for the Jew that is trying to, Paul is trying to persuade to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so, great significance. And then we come to Hebrews, and you have the, the passage, interesting, he's an Old Testament figure, but we learn more about him in the New Testament than we do the Old Testament. We have more information here in Hebrews, and specifically chapter 7 and following, than we have anywhere in the Old Testament. And so, that's where we come to this passage. What does this passage show? We finished up just kind of giving you this blank last time. It shows the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood from which or which God connects to Jesus Christ, from which his high priesthood is derived and the connection made. Okay. Certainly the first three verses, we'll read them here in just a second. Uh, they detail what happened in Genesis 14, but they do so much more. We mentioned last time as we close, there's five different ways at least given in these verses whereby Paul points out that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior. Here are some ways, some areas in which that is so. Let's read it, and then we'll delve into a couple of them tonight as the time allows us to do so. Verse 1 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, First being, that's a tithe, and it's explained later on in the passage, but a tenth part of all. First being by interpretation, king of righteousness, and after that also, king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. And that's a great statement at the end, abideth a priest continually, that hits upon a lot of what we'll see here, okay? So let's begin with this first proof or evidence of the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek. It is this, letter A, the extent of the priesthood. The extent, or you could say the reach of the priesthood. Uh, who does it include? Well, the priesthood in the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood within Judaism, was strictly national. 
It was strictly Jewish. Okay? In relating and dealing with Israel, God gave him, used his name Jehovah or Yahweh. Now, that's an interesting name because it was uh, tied throughout the Scriptures to his relationship with Israel most predominantly, right? In fact, the Jews came to revere that name as being special representation of their connection, their relationship with God, so much so that they wouldn't even utter it. It was a name they would not utter. They would not speak that name as Jews, and uh, it was too holy in their estimation to pronounce. And, uh, and it's kind of interesting because Old Hebrew did not have vowels to it. As we think of vowels, we really don't know what the name was pronounced like, though it was likely very close to what we hear Yahweh pronounced and such. But we don't know for sure. We also know that when they read the Scriptures aloud, they wouldn't use that term. They wouldn't say Jehovah. They wouldn't say Yahweh. Often they would substitute another uh, name, or they would all the time substitute another name for God, uh, the one that is translated as Lord, Adonai. And uh, they would substitute that when they would read it out loud because they thought the name was too holy. It was so representative of their relationship with God, this Jehovah Yahweh name for God. And so very special to them in that sense. When you and I read it in the King James, we see it often as capitalized, all caps, Lord, L-O-R-D, or it is also translated as Jehovah, and uh, that we come across the scriptures in which that appears. So we've come to understand, obviously, as we study scriptures, it's heavily associated, connected to the covenants that he made with uh, Israel, all the way from Abraham and his reiteration of those covenants, the fulfillment of those covenants. And so it is very much, we kind of connect it, you could call it a covenant name of God, or certainly from a Jewish standpoint, was referenced as such, because it was a covenantal um, name for God, all right? And, and, we, we'll, and vice versa, what do we see? Sometimes Israel was referred to as Jehovah's people. Uh, the priests were, Levites were called Jehovah's priests. In fact, several times in our King James translation, in an English translation, you'll read, the priest of the Lord, caps, all caps. They were the priests of Jehovah. Now, that's an interesting description for those of the Levitical priesthood. It was a designation of them being for uh, Israel, their nation, their nation, the national restrictions, strictly Jewish, if we could put it that way. Well, verse 1 here in our passage, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, did you see what it describes Melchizedek at? Look at it again, verse number 1. It describes him as the priest of the Most High God. The Most High God. Now, there's an interesting element about this statement here. It, it is a description that is borrowed from Genesis 14, 18. Okay? If you were to look back at Genesis 14, 18 that we read last week, it says the very same thing. In fact, I think it says a couple different times, uses this description of God. Now, describing him or titling him the Most High God is indicative of a universal term for God. Not just limited to one nation, not strictly Jewish. And so you see this description, the title may be used in that sense. In fact, the verse would go on to describe him in, as the Most High God. Notice what it describes him as. It describes him as the possessor of heaven and earth. So it broadens it, it kind of widens the scope of who the Most High God is and his, in a sense, certainly his sovereignty, who he is over. He is over all. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. Not that Jehovah isn't, not that Yahweh isn't, but the reality is that had a leaning or a reference to the covenant relationship between Israel and God. 
more so. And then that's why you see this term here, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. It's a powerful thing. Melchizedek came to uh, um, Abraham. He bestowed that blessing there in verse 19 of Genesis 14. And he said this, and he blessed him and he said, blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. So what happens in that verse, what is reiterated in this passage here is the exaltation of Melchizedek and God specifically more so excuse me the exaltation of God in Melchizedek as his high priest above all national and dispensational distinction it's not limited to just Israel it's not just limited to a specific dispensation of uh, of law or whatever it may be of, uh, of grace, it's not limited to one of those dispensations. It it's, uh, kind of crosses all borders, shall we say, the description. He is the God over both the Jew and the Gentile. And what's interesting about this term and describing this unique aspect of God, it's first used in connection to Melchizedek, his introduction in scriptures as a priest of the Most High God. Now, that's interesting because in the Jews, the Levitical priesthood was often referred to as the priests of the Lord, of Jehovah. Uh, kind of a, a limitation in the sense of the re- reference to that connection covenantal-wise to Israel. When we're talking about Melchizedek, he's described as the priest of the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth much wider, broader spectrum in what it covers. You see, Melchizedek was a priest, not just for Abraham or the Jewish nation, but for God or to the whole world. Uh, He is the extent of his priesthood. It pictures the extent, certainly, of Christ's priesthood. It's really a powerful truth confronting the Jewish believer converting to Christianity, so don't miss it. When he identifies uh, uh, here Melchizedek being the priest of the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, then you must look at, and this is what Paul alludes to, how did Abraham interact with him? Abraham being the father of the Jews. He was identified certainly as their great patriarch, the one who through the nation was blessed and came to be through Isaac and such. So how did he interact with this priest of the Most High God? Well, you study this passage, you go back to Genesis chapter 14, and we realize that father, uh, that, excuse me, Abraham is the father of the nation, was submitting himself to that priest. He not only submitted himself, but he also gave tithes. We, we read that just a moment ago, to whom Abraham gave tenth part of all, verse number two says. Such an interaction, it spoke to the validity and the credence to this order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And it was around long before Aaron came around and the Levitical priesthood was established. Now, I don't believe it's a coincidence that Abraham, after he has this interaction with Melchizedek, Melchizedek blesses him. He in turn submits to this, this blessing of the priest and also ties to him, um, uh, again, recognizing that his priesthood is of God. Abraham, in turn, when he's talking to the king of Sodom, he, he uses both the terms for God. Notice what he says in Genesis chapter number 14, verse 22, okay? And uh, let me, we'll come back to that. Hang on a second, okay? Genesis chapter 14, verse 22 says this, And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Powerful statement, because he uses both. You see, Lord there, all caps, it is Yahweh, and then he adds to the the second title, the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. 
very much Abraham realizes this. That there's God who is the title that's representative of his covenant with me. And then there's also this title that recognizes that God is God. He is the most high God. He is the God of the entire world. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. And that is to whom Melchizedek is a priest or for whom identifying that and such. And so we made this statement here. Uh, sorry, I skipped it. But Jesus Christ, who is after the order of Melchizedek, is not simply the Messiah and priest of Israel, but of the whole world. Again, we're talking comparisons. We're talking about contrast. Uh, they would have known, the Jew would have known the Levitical priesthood, yes, were revered and such, but they were just the priests for Israel, for the nation, uh, for God, uh, of uh, certainly the line of Levi and such, and Aaron, obviously. And yet, here's Melchizedek, and he is the priest of the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. The extent of the priesthood is much greater. And Abraham uses the combination of that covenant name of God. And remember, uh, Genesis chapter 12 is where the covenant began, or at least our first recording of it, that God had extended that covenant or expressed that covenant to Abraham back then. So already Abraham has entered into this covenant, received the covenant from God. And so he uses that name, and he also uses that universal name of God, showing that he's the God of all the earth, Jew and Gentile alike. And it was a powerful argument, okay? So when Paul's reasoning with a Jewish reader here, he's saying, listen, this adds legitimacy, this adds validity to this order of Melchizedek that he is going to connect to Christ or has been connected to Christ. Why? Three things I think would have had to have been pointed out to the Jew if we could go there. The first is this. You see it on your outline. The Jewish believer would have had to acknowledge from his own scriptures uh, the existence of a priesthood completely separate from the Aaronic and Levitical, uh, Aaronic, excuse me, Levitical priesthood. So immediately he had to say, well, there's, you know, if Father Abraham, okay, and uh, it's hard to say not had many sons after that. When Father Abraham uh, submitted to him, he, he, uh, he, he acknowledged, he, he gave validity to, yeah, he's a priest of God. And, and, and so that added legitimacy. They'd have to say, yeah, if my father Abraham, our father Abraham recognized Melchizedek as a priest, even tied to him, that shows that this was around a long time before the Levitical priesthood and separate from it. Number two, it'll also have to demand that they recognize that it existed long before the Jewish priesthood. And that was hard for the Jews. They think the world revolved around them in some ways. That would have been hard for a Jew to acknowledge that yeah, this was around a long time before Aaron was established in the Levitical priesthood. That would have been tough. And then obviously, as we already mentioned, uh, they would have to admit that their father Abraham, uh, the father of their nation, both recognized it and submitted to it. I'll tell you, friend, that is a powerful truth. Again, I told you last week, you and I have to look at this a little bit from the, or a lot, from the mind of a Jew who has grown up in Judaism, who has grown up with these scriptures and has held central to this their priesthood. Now they're being confronted with the reality that there's a priesthood that's been around longer, separate from their own priesthood, and to which their father now submitted himself. And now they're being confronted with the truth that this is the order of the priesthood from which Christ is associated. 
from which Christ comes, if you could describe it as such. That would have been very difficult for them to, to wrap their mind around, to, to, to be confronted with, and yet Paul, like his lawyer-esque ability, he just gives the reasons. He gives the evidence. He just shows it and lays it out there for the Holy Spirit to take and consider. Number two, not only do we see the extent of the priesthood, but number two, letter B on our outline, we see the royal nature of the priesthood, the royal nature. Okay? The first two verses, you could quickly glance down, and immediately what you'll catch is that he is, Melchizedek, is referred to as a king at least four times. Referred to as a king at least four times, speaking to that royal aspect of it. Okay? Now, we've already looked at this when we looked at chapter 5 a little bit, but let's just really do a connection here. Okay? We noticed back then that in the Old Testament, there is a line of distinction, a line of demarcation that was not crossed. And that was between the throne and the altar. It was clear and distinct. There's a separation. We, we studied some of those guys who tried to go in there as kings and tried to offer a sacrifice. And boy, God struck them down or, or God uh, caused them to have leprosy and other things. God protected this line of separation between the kings and the priests. There's a line of demarcation. There was a line of distinction among these two offices as we described it. They all knew that. The Jews all knew that. And that was not to be crossed. You could not do that. History taught them that. The scriptures taught them that. So now they're being confronted with this uh, idea uh, of the combination of the two. For them, rulership of any kind was foreign and removed from the Levitical priesthood. And again, those who tried to combine it would face the wrath of God. But now in this man, they're being told that the two offices are, are combined, are joined together. In Melchizedek, he really is, you see it on the outline here, I believe, yeah. He's a beautiful picture of how Jesus Christ's priesthood as our high priest, his lordship as our king is united in one person. We see him described often in the New Testament and certainly alluded to in the Old Testament. He is the perfect high priest. Where others fail, where human high priests fail. We've seen this already in Hebrews. He excelled. What they could not do, he did. Likewise, he is the perfect king. We've had a chance at times to study, and I remember one of our times in our Sunday school class, we studied uh, uh, the, the coming kingdom of Christ. And my, what a beautiful picture of Christ as king and the perfect rule here on earth. Okay, no human ruler will ever provide that. Now, there was a man who was after God's own heart. His name was David. How would you describe his rule? Well, I, 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 seem, to, I seem to think that he fell into sin a few times. Numbering the people and immorality and things. I also, I also remember, and you, you might, he, he was chased from his kingdom and his palace by one of his own sons. And, I mean, he's pretty good overall. We would say, well, yeah, David, a yeah, man after God's own heart in different ways. He, he, I would say maybe David is the best that man can offer, humans can offer. And I'll tell you right now, it failed miserably short of Jesus Christ, who is all completely righteous. No human ruler, president, tyrant, king could ever offer what Jesus Christ is as the perfect king. Now, though it was a foreign concept to the Jews of that day and of the Old Testament, this combination of the priest and the king in one thing, that was foreign to them, though it was foreign. What's interesting, their own prophets spoke of the coming Messiah who would be that. 
who would be this combination. I, I love this passage in Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 13, okay? I didn't want to waste 10 minutes looking for the book, so I just put it up here, all right? Zechariah is a hard, uh, fun one, you know? Whenever you were working with kids and you wanted a little free time, you did a sword drill in Zechariah. It helped waste a little time, okay? And so Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 13 says this, all right? Uh, great statement. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, Jehovah, okay? You see that there? And he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne. Now, great statement. Now, notice the transition. And he shall be a priest upon his, what's the next word? Okay, now, do priests typically have a throne? No, they sure don't. Nowhere. Nowhere in the Old Testament you see that where there's a throne. They may have a seat. They may have, but they don't have a throne. A throne is reserved for a king. Good. You didn't say president. Praise the Lord. Okay. It's reserved for a king, right? Okay. So we understand this one verse is presenting two different concepts of what the one person will be. He'll build the temple. He will sit on his throne as a king, and then he will also be a priest on the throne. Now, wait a second. That does not fare anywhere into the paradigm that the Israelites, Israelites knew at that time, the Jews knew. That doesn't fit into what they knew of the Levitical priesthood and the kingly chain or lineage. Well, it's, now it's because it's speaking of the coming Messiah. And he will do these things. And you see the statement? And the council of peace shall be between them both. Okay. What's both? Both of the offices. Both the, the temple and the throne. The altar and the throne. There's going to be peace that comes. Can, can I tell you? He alone, and we might not have time. I doubt we will. But we'll see that Jesus Christ alone is the author of peace. Both as a priest and a king. This is a great passage speaking to that. Psalm chapter 110, which we looked at or referenced a moment ago, we looked at last week. Psalm 110, David alludes to the Messiah also assuming both those roles. That one that even the Jews recognize, it speaks or at least alludes to both of those roles in the future. Now, here's what's interesting, okay? Look at verse number two. He's referred to the king of, as the king of Salem. It's an interesting statement. It really is a powerful statement in many ways, too. It, it is also a repetition of Genesis chapter 14, okay? Uh, what is Salem? Well, well, Salem was an ancient name uh, for the city that would later become known better as Jerusalem, okay? And so that was an early reference to it, and uh, it was a use when he's referred to as king of Salem, and it certainly indicates a connection between Melchizedek and Jerusalem. And what is Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem is that city that's always had a special place in God's heart. It's his treasured city. He calls it the holy city. He, calls it, he references it throughout uh, uh, time, really, as such. Here's a good example, a couple of verses, Psalm chapter 132, and 13 and 14 verse 17 for the lord hath chosen zion uh, again a term in scriptures for jerusalem he hath desired it for his habitation this is my rest forever here will i dwell for i have desired it there will i make the horn of david to bud now that's uh, a lot of prophetical statements there a lot of uh, concrete historical things so if that's indeed jerusalem and it's referenced as salem that truth is pretty powerful because now the Jew has to come face to face, eye to eye, with this thought, okay? <laughs> Though we don't know when God first designated Jerusalem as his special holy city, it would appear that even during the time of Abraham, he had a faithful priest and king serving and ruling there long before Israel's kings and priests ruled and served in the city. And I'll tell you, that's a, that's a pretty cool picture, 
Because my friend, I'll look forward to the day, and I hope you do too, that you and I will see Jesus Christ ruling from Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem and such, we'll see him sitting upon the throne as our priest and king ruling over all the earth. I love this picture that we have, even in Melchizedek, this reference to him being the king of Salem. It clearly speaks to the royal nature of the priesthood of Melchizedek while also establishing the superiority over the limited and temporary Levitical priesthood. So you combine these first two thoughts and you have a great challenge to the thinking of the Jews, really to their national bias. And we'll have to finish here, but think about this with me. Due to their unique relationship, that the Jews would often have a prejudice. You, you and I can affirm based on scriptures, and even to this day, we will confirm that God has a special relationship with Israel. Uh, he, they are his chosen nation. They are the, the people, uh, his people, as the scriptures make clear. And yet at the same time, we also have seen how repeatedly they misunderstood and presumed upon that unique relationship to God down through the ages. See, the Jews would often acknowledge God as the absolute creator of heaven and earth, as the only sovereign of this world, and and that's right, and that's good, and they recognize Him as such, but they also had a difficulty understanding Him, and don't miss it, as the Redeemer and Savior of the world. As Redeemer and Savior of the world. Not just the Jew, but that even Gentiles. Okay, now let's think about this for a second all the way through. Okay, it became prevalent in the early New Testament in Acts and such. The Jews in Jerusalem, as the church grew and many Jews became believers as Christians, Paul started taking the gospel different places. And what happened? They got word that Gentiles were getting saved and they started to have issues with that. But they're not circumcised. They're not this. This isn't happening. This isn't happening. You see this prejudice start to creep out. Like, wait a minute, how can a Gentile be saved? And I find it interesting that down through the ages, there's always seen to be some false doctrine that says that God only died to save a few. Isn't that interesting? And we find that doctrine in different places. People try to introduce it. Can I just tell you, I sure am glad that Jesus Christ died for the world. And this is a great trip. And the Jews are going to have problems with it. The Jews are going to have issues with that reality. And they have down through time. You could put it this way. As creator and sustainer, they believe he belonged to the world. But as Savior and Lord, they had the mindset that he belonged only to them. They had a hard time struggling. And, and, and Paul is addressing it here. Paul is trying to clear up the muddy waters. Uh, they would have had a hard time imagining another divine covenant and another divine priesthood, especially one that was royal and superior to their own. They would have struggled with this concept. And that's why Paul has to hit it head on and, and use this evidence and use the scripture to say, listen, this show, Abraham submitted to this, uh, this high priest. Look, he he is also a king. That's greater than your Aaron. That's greater than any of your Levitical priests. You see, uh, they were told often that there's a new covenant in Christ. And it was called new, yes, but it not only superseded their covenant, but in type, again, pictured by a type, it was actually in existence before theirs. Through the order of Melchizedek. It was in existence in type before even the Levitical one. You see, it would have been a very hard pill to swallow for many a Jew. 
we can imagine. And just in these few verses here, there was much to challenge the thinking and understanding of the typical Jew raised in Judaism. And yet, what's the purpose? It calls them to consider Jesus Christ, who we have already seen is superior to everything Judaism offers and his supremacy over everything. And so Paul is once again just laying out the evidence, and I don't think it's in a hostile, harsh way. I think he's just trying to reason with them. I've said it before. I love the passage. It says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. God always wants you and I to be confronted with the truth because there is nothing to hide in the truth. Let's just give you the truth, and now let's reason together about what is presented. Paul does that here. Next week, we'll get into the next few things, the next few areas or items of evidence, if we could put it that way, and we pick up here in Hebrews chapter 7. Brooke, if you'll bring those prayer requests.